Dead Headspace. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other major platforms. Today, we're joined by my host, as always, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello. And we're joined also by Mark Steensland. Say hi, Mark. Hi there. He is the author of many books, many collaborative books, as well as plays and a few other things. Uh, there's books coming out that we're going to be discussing shortly. But before we do that, Mark, have you heard of BuzzBook Expo 2020? I have not. Oh, well, let me tell you about that. Mary San Giovanni's got this put together. It's uh, for readers, book reviewers, podcasters, librarians, booksellers, and lovers of great scary books. BuzzBook Expo 2020 is just around the corner. BuzzBook Expo is a live streaming event in which publishers will be announcing all the great new horror fiction releases they have to offer through the coming year. There will be interviews, Q&As, presentations, book cover reveals, and more from all your favorite horror publishers, all for free. Spend two days immersed in exciting book talk from publishers and authors alike. The event will take place on August 22nd and 23rd. All information, including links to the expo, can be found at Mary Sanji. That's M-A-R-Y-S-A-N-G-I dot WordPress dot com slash buzz hyphen book hyphen expo hyphen 2020. We hope to see you there. Mark Steensland, we have been waiting patiently for a few months to talk with you, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I know that Brennan's really excited to talk to you about one of your latest projects. I'm excited to talk to you about a few other things. Before we dive into the specifics, let's uh, let's find out about what got you into horror. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a pretty complex question. Uh, Take it. Take it anywhere you want. I under, yeah, that's a vague question. And no, I mean it's a, it's it's just big. You know, I think there's a lot of things uh, that I could probably trace my interest in horror to. I would say starting with first of all, um, Rosemary's Baby. In uh, let's see, I guess that was 60, 68 or sixty nine. I can't remember exactly now. Um, so my dad was an Episcopalian minister. And uh, and so at the time, I mean, as you know, from the film, uh, they even reference the Time magazine cover. Uh, God is dead. Uh, you know, it was kind of a, a thing that people were talking about. And uh, and of course, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and all these other kinds of things that were coming out then were part of uh, that same sort of wave, so to speak. Anton LaVey had started the Church of Satan in San Francisco, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I mean, obviously, with Rosemary's Baby, it was a very high profile kind of thing. And my dad wanted to go to see the movie to find out what was the movie about? What was it like? You know, and this kind of stuff. So uh, I have three older brothers. I'm much younger than the rest of them uh, by seven years. In fact, by the, the, the next closest one is seven years. So I was really young. I was like four years old. And so we all loaded into the station wagon to go to the drive in. And I was supposed to be asleep in the very back of the station wagon while the rest of the family was in the front watching Rosemary's Baby. So, of course, I wasn't asleep. I was listening to this whole movie. And that's all I could do was listen to the movie. I couldn't see it. 
And uh, there's a scene in the movie where the doctor tells Rosemary that her due date uh, for the baby is June 28th, which is my birthday. So I promptly sat up and said, that's my birthday. And everybody started cracking up because, <laughs> you know, of course, Mark is supposed to be asleep. And it's now obvious that I was not asleep at all. So anyhow, it's a very strange kind of experience to remember, um, especially when you think about hearing a movie instead of seeing it. And uh, a movie like that also that is, you know, got a lot of different things going on. So that for sure was something that stuck in my mind. Uh, this is also about the same time, 6970, uh, that Monster Kid stuff was pretty big. Aurora Monster Models, the Warren magazines like Creepy and Eerie and Famous Monsters. And so my the brother that is closest in age to me uh, was, you know, like about 12 or so, 13. So he was prime age for all of that monster kid stuff. And he had it all. He had all the Aurora models and all the famous monsters magazines and all that kind of stuff. So that was all in the bedroom we shared. And, um, and so that was absolutely a presence, you know, in my, uh, in my life, of course, uh, funny story, a thing that happened also in this kind of time period is my brother had this poster of Bella Lugosi as Dracula in his Dracula pose and we had bunk beds in the room and he had the top bunk and I had the lower bunk and he had the Bella Lugosi poster above his top bunk, you know, by his head. And uh, one night the poster came loose from the wall and slid down the wall behind the bed and lodged into the position directly behind my head. But it made, of course, it also made this horrible scratching sound. So I woke up to this sound of and I woke up and turned around. And of course, it was Dracula right over my bed. And I screamed bloody murder and, um, you know, had quite an experience with that. So, you know, that also being scared. And um, and then uh, this is when uh, Night Gallery was uh, coming onto television. Um, and my parents had been big fans of The Twilight Zone. And so when they heard that Rod Serling had a new TV show, they were very interested in that. So we all gathered around the television as a family to watch uh, Night Gallery. And of course, you know, that's uh, something else that would be a big influence on me. Just that kind of storytelling, that particular show, the Rod Serling persona. I mean, really kind of that's how I came into the Twilight Zone later when it was in syndication. So you take all of that stuff so far. And then my father died when I was very young. He died when I was six. And so suddenly I'm in a funeral parlor, you know, like looking at my father as they prepare him for the funeral. And then I'm going to the funeral and then I'm going to the cemetery where he is being buried. And it's all of this kind of stuff that has been sort of on television or, you know, in movies and magazines. And suddenly it's this real thing in my life. And uh, and so I think kind of all of that stuff really kind of cemented then the the influence, if you will, or the interest and, you know, all of that kind of stuff and really kind of made horror um, a thing for me. Let's put it that way. That's awesome. Uh, that's, you know, very, um, 
it almost sounds like you didn't have a choice. You know, you kind of grew up inundated by it. Yeah. yeah. So how do we make the leap from you being immersed in horror to you starting to become a creator? You're active in so many mediums. What's the first one that jumped out at you? Um, well, I, uh, I remember distinctly um, a, I think it was my, let's see, I said distinctly and now I say I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was my first grade teacher who read to us in class as a group thing, uh, one of the Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators books. And I don't know if you're familiar with that series. It's kind of like uh, Hardy Boys, but it's these three kids who are, you know, investigate mysteries. But the gimmick of it is that they, Alfred Hitchcock kind of, they visit Alfred Hitchcock at the studio. He's looking for, in the first book, he's looking for a haunted a real haunted house to shoot a movie in. And so they sort of go on an investigation to do that. And then later he's less involved, but I mean, it was kind of this persona. So interesting, like that's how I got to know Hitchcock is because of, you know, these weird books. And I became really fascinated with those books and really loved reading this whole series. I mean, many, many of these um, books. And so I read um, a lot of those on my own. And then I think it was in fourth grade, that we yes it was in fourth grade that we did a a book project which was write a book and make the book uh as a class project so each of us kind of wrote and illustrated our own book and there was all this process of you know making the pages and and putting the cover design on and all that kind of stuff and i just really got fascinated by that part of the process also the idea of me doing something creative in that way and then being able to read my book to somebody. So all of that, I think really kind of played into my interest in creative stuff. It's about that time also that I see uh, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. I went to see when I was like nine and um, Oh boy, even before that, let me let me back up just a second. It, it's funny now that I'm thinking about all of this stuff. Um, so after my father died, um, then my mother, you know, kind of just obviously was taking care of the family and, you know, adjusting to everything and so forth. And about a year after my father died, then um, this guy asked her out. And, uh, and so she started kind of going out with this guy. And he was a movie theater manager. And uh, there was a twin screen theater, one of the twin screen theaters in town, it's part of a chain. And he managed that theater as his job. And so um, my mom kind of, she liked to use me as sort of the, uh, I don't, I guess I could say kind of like protection, like everything that he wanted to do, I had to go along with it, you know, like, so if we went out, I was with them. And I think she was kind of thinking this would sort of keep him at a distance, of course, you know, to a certain degree until she could get to know him better and and this kind of stuff. But what we would do is we'd go to the movies. So um, I saw all kinds of stuff that I should have never seen, probably at the age of, you know, uh, eight. Uh, Legend of Hell House, uh, Death Watch uh, or Night Watch, I mean, um, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, which isn't a horror film, but I mean, holy smoke, that's pretty, uh, you know, it's some pretty grown up stuff. Um, so I got to see a lot of that stuff and I liked the horror stuff. I mean, Legend of Hell House just really, I really liked that movie and it was totally terrifying. 
Um, so that got me into the movies because the manager then took me behind the scenes. I got to go up into the projection booth and into the manager's office and behind the snack bar. And he gave me posters, you know, and of course he's trying to get to my mom through me in a certain sense. And so all of that kind of added up to me getting this extra exposure and, um, you know, really, uh, being interested in the movies and so forth. I'm thinking, it's also reminding me now of we went to, when my father was still alive, we went to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival. I don't know if you know anything about that. It's this world famous um, Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. Uh, and they put on amazing productions. They have a, a duplicate of the Globe Theater there and it's been around forever. And so we went to that um, and the backstage tour was absolutely fascinating to me. I think I was probably five years old and seeing the trap doors and all of the pulleys for the set system, you know, and the staging and all of that stuff really uh, fascinated me as well. So I was very interested in behind the scenes stuff. Same thing with the movies. So when I get to Phantom of the Paradise in 74, then I love the movie. Of course, it opens with Rod Serling narration. So I'm already into it because I'm a huge Serling fan and I love the movie and I loved all of the dynamic style of it. And I went back to the theater to see it a bunch of times uh, and just really kind of got into the thought of of movies, of being creative in that way and uh, and so forth. So by the time then, <clears throat> I guess... By the time uh, Halloween comes out in 78, then I was 13 and um, Halloween is this huge success and it's this little movie, you know, independent movie. It was kind of like it was realistic to think that that was a possibility because of what I was reading about on the behind the scenes stuff. So I had a Super 8 camera. I immediately got my Super 8 camera and started getting my friends together to try to make movies that acted like Halloween, you know, um, and not very well, uh, of course, but nonetheless kind of going through that and it started to get more serious and, uh, and then by the time The Shining happens in 1980 um, and I was 15, then I was fully invested in the idea of wanting to go in that direction for career and education and all that kind of stuff. I was reading all the behind the scenes magazines, American Cinematographer, Fangoria, Cinefantastique, you know, et cetera. So it really is. I mean, it's, it's interesting when I sort of I haven't ever that I can recall talked about it exactly like this in this way, but it is, I think you can really see the through line kind of carrying every place where things could have been different. You know, um, I remember going to the movie theater with this guy that my mom was dating on Saturday morning, they had kids movies. And one of those days was like born free and Clarence, the cross-eyed lion or something. And I was watching this. I'm like, man, this is so boring. I hate this. I want to go see Legend of Hell House again, you know, or uh, or that kind of stuff. So it was it, the die was cast, I think, by uh, by a fairly young um, age. That is a lot of awesome movies uh, that you saw live, man. I'm jealous. For Rosemary's Baby. I mean, it, I know that it got a lot of shocking reviews. Yeah, for its time, it still holds up today. I think, yeah. uh, and to hear it 
opposed to watch it, I feel like that would do more uh, things to you as a <laughs> little kid, especially. Yeah. Psychological damage yeah. is the word you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're all freaks. We all love horror. So, <laughs> yeah. so there are so many things I want to pick apart, but let's, you know what? I got to focus on one thing first before I go off track. One of your friends, I, um, I've liked what I've seen her in Barbara Crampton. Can we talk? Can we talk about that for a little bit? How did how did you two meet? Uh, we can. Um, I mean, I can talk about it a little bit. So, um, well, I wrote this script called Jacob's Wife, and um, Jacob's Wife won the uh, top prize at the Shriekfest Film Festival in 2015. And, um, and so, uh, I thought, you know, that, that I mean, cause the, the, the principal roles in the movie and the script are, uh, are an older couple. And, um, and one of my first thoughts was because Barbara Crampton had just started to make her comeback, you know, with your next. And so she was kind of bad. And of course I was a huge Barbara Crampton fan from reanimator and from beyond, of course, because, you know, I mean, I saw all that stuff, um, theatrically as well. I mean, by then I was, you know, like 20. So, um, anyhow, uh, so I just thought that Barbara should, play this part it would be awesome if she would play this part so i've got to get the script to her and so i'm friends with the festival director and i knew that the festival director was friends with barbara and so i asked if she could help me get the script to barbara so she said yeah so barbara read the script and got in touch with me and said she loved it and she wanted to produce it and uh so we worked out the deal and um and then it's taken a long time as these things do uh, to develop and to put together the whole movie. And, you know, you've got to get the right cast and you've got to get the right director and you've got to get the right, you know, the script has to be right. And all of those things all have to come together and you got to get the money right <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And so um, interestingly, uh, that all came together and uh, the movie was shot um, just before the pandemic, uh, just before we shut down for everything because of coronavirus back in March. So oh, they, wow. they literally wrapped the movie and they were coming home when the word went out that everything was shutting down. So it was really, uh, I mean, a change, you know, a week in one direction uh, could have delayed the movie obviously you know to who knows when now mm. so they went into quarantine basically into post-production and so uh the movie is is being finished now um you know cut together and and all that stuff i don't have i mean we don't know you know where it will premiere ultimately or any of those kinds of things but you know, you go through a process like that. I mean, Barbara, that's been since 2015. So Barbara and I have had all of this kind of ongoing interaction, obviously, as she's been developing the screenplay and um, just lots of different opportunities to, you know, to be together for one thing or another. I mean, interestingly, um, I was, uh, I'd already 
formed a friendship with Fabio Fritzi because of him scoring one of my earlier short films. And then Fabio and Barbara got to be friends. And so then when Fabio came on, you know, to the U.S. on tour the last time, I've seen him a couple of times on tour. And so then Barbara and I got together to go to San Francisco to see Fabio, you know, have dinner before the show and then go to the show and uh, and see Fabio play and um, stuff like that. So, you know, kind of fun, fun. Uh, I don't know what you'd say, side effects of the, the rest of the process. But, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where that's coming from. So um, that's pretty cool, man. The yeah. last movie I remember seeing Barbara in was uh, Beyond the Gates 2016 movie. Yeah. I mean, she I don't even she had barely any lines, but she was so creepy for for anyone that hasn't seen it. Uh, it's basically these kids. find Well, not kids. These probably kids my age, 30 year olds find this old VH. Their parents uh, video stores closing down. Um, long story short, they find a VHS tape that is one of those VHS board games. And she is. Someone that just kind of stares at you. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's the, the goat or the host, the guide in the game. Yeah. She was perfect. Yeah. And, um, so you talked about the the lady that uh, founded Shriekfest, Denise Gossett. And yes. I actually, I've gotten the pleasure to talk to her a few times. And we're going to be having her on the show, I hope. Uh She's the best. She's awesome. Uh, she, we've we've talked a little bit about her. Uh, I've talked a little bit to her, and I mean, she's just got. It's been twenty years, and she seems like she's just still full of energy, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Yeah, um, for those that aren't aware of it, do you mind telling people about Shriek Fest a little bit? Well, um, I mean, Shriekfest is the best. Uh, it's Denise, just really what she does, what she's put together, and and over time, you know, what's developed and so forth. I mean, film festivals, there's all different kinds of film festivals, obviously, and different film festivals have different things that they are known for. I mean, some film festivals are known for screening things that then get sold from that film festival. So Sundance... Toronto. Um, I mean, of course, Toronto also has films that already have distribution and they're having their premiere at the film festival and so forth. But a, a lot of times as a filmmaker, you finish a film, you want to get into one of these film festivals so that it screens and then buyers go there to watch the movies and to find something to to purchase, you know, to distribute. So that and that happens. I mean, that absolutely happens uh, at Shriekfest as well. Um, but uh the other part of these film festivals is a lot of the stuff is like a com- competition. So you win best of, you know, best horror feature or best horror short. Um, Shriekfest also, as I mentioned already, has a screenplay component. So they have different categories there and you enter your screenplay and, you know, the, their judges decide which one is the best. So uh, it's just it's very much in line with these other kinds of film festivals. But Denise is what makes it different because she's just this she's absolutely a force of nature and um, she just puts together a really really great festival and it's uh, it's so it's big and yet at the same time it's small I mean when it's in you know I don't know what's going to happen this October with pandemic but without that I mean it's at Raleigh Studios in the screening room at Raleigh Studios down in Los Angeles across from the Paramount lot 
And um, it's just, you know, it's just such a great dynamic environment. In fact, at the last Shriekfest, because I mean, I've been in it a bunch of times um, for a lot of different things, a lot of different screenplays over the years. Um, and uh, the last one that I was at is where I met Sean Olson and Christian Beckman, the filmmaking team, uh, the guys who uh, bought the film rights to my story, The Black Jar Man, and um, and the feature script that goes, you know, that I wrote uh, based on that story. So they're hoping to make that movie. They were hoping to shoot it. They were hoping to be shooting now. But, um, you know, again, unfortunately, because of what's going on with COVID, then that's not possible. But that's where I met those guys was at Shriekfest. And, um, you know, so that's that's the best kind of environment that you can hope for. And, and Denise really puts it together that way. Yeah, I, I can tell. I mean, she seems like I said, super energetic and passionate about it. Uh, it's been two decades and she's I mean, just talking to her only through uh, email and messengers. Yeah. She seems like a very welcoming person. Oh, yeah. She she actually said her, she she was kind of like into if I could go and I'm like uh yeah I don't know if I can afford that. Yeah. <laughs> um so I first was introduced to her because I was lucky enough to get a screening a screener for the movie that won it last year which was Green Room starring Chase Williamson and that was pretty that was a pretty cool movie. Green light you mean? Uh, yeah what did I say Green Room I'm thinking of the Green. I'm sorry. No, I've been Greenlight. watching a, I've been watching yeah. a bunch of horror movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, my, my friend actually produced Greenlight. So oh, okay. that was one of the other things that I was there for was uh, for his premiere. And it was great to see them uh, win the top prize there. That was cool. Yeah. And I love their um, little tro- the not trophy, the award that they have. It's was yes. it like a buzzsaw yes. blade or something like that. Yeah. Um, so. Along the lines of films, I did uh, see that you, you – I don't know if you still do. You worked at Penn State helping teach uh, young filmmakers. Yeah, t- uh, teaching is my day job and um, has been since – let's see, since about 99, I guess. Um, and I started uh, teaching college. Mm. Uh, I started with one class at a community college in the Bay Area. And then um, in 2001, because uh, I was still working another job. And so I was kind of, you know, doing both of those things. And then in 2001, I got hired for my first full time uh, teaching job down in Southern California. And so went down there for that and then um, taught at Penn State from like, oh, four, oh, five to 2012 or so. We're from California. So we had gone, you know, to Pennsylvania to for my job. And then um, my wife and some of the other family members couldn't handle 13 feet of snow a year. So uh, <laughs> we uh, moved back to California. We've been back here in California since um, since 2012 or so. And so now I'm teaching uh, teaching film at a couple of campuses here. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that's why I moved uh, south of Massachusetts. I got the last one I stayed up there. My girlfriend, well, my wife, but girlfriend at the time, uh, we experienced the record-breaking snowstorm of what, what was it, 2015? Uh-huh. 90 uh-huh. something inches of snow in three months. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> so, Brendan, let's move on to uh, a different subject, man. I got I, I, I got other things that I'd like to talk about films, but we can get back to those later. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I just like the fact that, you know, I you're talking about the record breaking snowfall and I can't even think of which one you mean, um, <laughs> you know, it, about four years ago, 90 inches in three months. I don't know. I, I don't remember. <laughs> Didn't stick out for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, look at me, Mr. Snow. <laughs> Is that an insult? Or? <laughs> I, I, I don't I say dumb shit. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. If you're going to move out of here to avoid the weather, you know, you only moved a little bit down the coast. You don't miss the hurricanes, I'm afraid. So That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, Mark, you're raking the roof. I got to just say raking the roof was probably the most entertaining part of living in the snow. Right? <laughs> that, that was. Uh, oh, yeah. My question can wait. That's much more entertaining. Yeah. When I <laughs> we, we bought our house, you know, we had lived in uh, apartments up until about 2016. And we when we bought our house, I didn't even know that a roof rake was a thing but it is not only a thing but it is an absolutely indispensable thing to a new england homeowner (laughs) yes and especially fun when it's two stories you know so we lived in a in a two-story house and i had to have these you know these crazy extensions on uh on the roof rake and uh (laughs) yeah it was a lot of fun so i mean i i loved it i i love weather i love intense weather um, we had super intense uh, summer rainstorms, and of course, fall is just unbelievable. Um, we were very close to uh, Western New York, so uh, we we had lots of opportunities to go over into Western New York. Uh, there's a, lo- a place called Panama Rocks that is just one of the most incredible places I've ever been to. And we used to go there during the fall. It's just gorgeous and incredible rock formations and, um, you know, really, really cool stuff. Plus I, I liked being close to, we were about three hours from Toronto. Um, and so I used to get to go to a Toronto film festival and, uh, I got into Fantasia a couple of times. So we got to go to Montreal for that. And it was just fun to be in that part of the country. I mean, Nikon was a huge, thing for me. I mean, when I met Rick Houdela um, at the Rod Serling conference in Ithaca, New York, and then he invited me to Nikon. And, you know, I mean, that's where I met all of those people, Chris Golden and F. Paul Wilson and Monteleone and Pete Crowther. And I mean, the list goes on. It's endless, you know, Um, it's just really amazing. So How, how do you get in there, man? I know like the tickets are limited, but I've heard so many authors that I like, including yourself and Y'all are just like, this is pretty much a kick-ass club. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the best. I mean, I really, really miss it. And, um, you know, it's uh, I haven't been back, obviously, since we came back to California. Um, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really remarkable. Well, I mean, the thing is that you register for it. And because there are the limited number of slots, uh, everybody who was in last year gets first crack at registering for the next year. And so most of the time, all those people re-register, which means that there's, again, a limited number of um, tickets available. I mean, there's still there. You know, I mean, new people come all the time. I mean, I, you know, I went as a new person. It's where I met Charlie Kolya. Um, I think it was for both of us. I think it was our first Nikon at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we got to meet each other there and just kind of, you know, maintained the uh, the friendship ever since. So 
anyway, but not to go too far off of Brendan's question, I know we got distracted with the roof rake and somehow got onto Mekon, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what it was. It's, you know, <laughs> weather weather tangents take precedence. I, yeah, I, I'd probably complain about the weather no matter where I lived, honestly. <laughs> but um, so actually, you know, your kind of career trajectory led towards the movies. How did you kind of make that jump to uh, playwriting and eventually novel and novella writing? Uh, well, that's, I mean, frankly, it's always been the writing. Um, the irony is that why I got into making films was because I was trying to provide examples of like what my screenplays would look like if somebody made it into a movie. People weren't paying attention to the screenplays, and I thought they'd pay attention to a movie. So uh, the first feature that I made, uh, which was The Last Way Out back in like 96 and came out in 97, I think, uh, was a script that I had written. And that then, you know, I put together this minuscule budget. We made it for $10,000 and, um, you know, to put together as a movie and try to get it out there and say, here's again, here's what my stuff would look like. So that just kind of kept going then and um you know that really didn't i mean it was moderately successful but it wasn't any breakout and uh same thing with my documentary which was on you know on the phil k dick was moderately successful but wasn't again wasn't a breakout and we were hampered there by incredibly low budget i mean we had no, nothing for that also um, and, uh, and so then, you know, I started kind of making short films and trying to use that again as a way to get the career going. And, um, then, and still, of course, writing all the time. Uh, so behind the bookcase, which is my first published novel, um, that was in 2012, was written at the time that I was doing all these other short films. I mean, Rick and I were writing scripts together. Uh, Chris Golden is the one who helped me uh, get that book sold to Random House because he knew an editor there and, you know, recommended me to that editor, my book to that editor. And that's the way that that came about. So, um, and of course, my journalism background, that goes back to when I was like 19, when I first got professionally published as a journalist. So it's really always been about the writing. And when I left Penn State and came back to California, then I lost access to all of the equipment and resources that I had at Penn State. I was in charge of the production program at Penn State at the campus where I taught in Erie. And so I had all this gear. I had all these students. They were my crew. We would go out and, you know, I could make these short films for, you know, nothing because I had all the stuff. And uh, and so that's what I was doing. And when I came to California, it was like, well, um, now I don't have the stuff. It's got to I've got to kind of go back to the writing. And uh, that's when I really started pushing um, the screenplays at the screenplay competitions. And that's when I won Jacob's wife. And that's when I won Jimmy the freak at shore scripts and at Asbury park. And, um, you know, some of that stuff. And that really kind of started me thinking about, well, if I'm going to focus on the writing, then let's focus on the writing. And that's really what I've been concentrating on. And frankly, I mean, it's much more satisfying to me because like, 
I can write something and then the filmmakers, you know, they go, they have to spend a year doing that thing. They're on one thing for a year or longer. I mean, Barbara took, I mean, obviously she was doing other stuff, but I mean, to, to take five years to try to get a movie going. I mean, meanwhile, I'm writing all these other things so I can keep doing all that other stuff while those other things are going on. I feel um, more artistically free, you know, to do that. So that's, it's really, I know how it looks in a certain sense, like, you know, sort of maybe shifting gears or doing something different, but it really has been kind of all about the writing for me, um, you know, from the start. You know, that that's sorry to cut you off, Brennan. Those are great answers. You tackled everything except for one thing about films. And I got to ask, you were on a pretty big fucking movie, Day of the Dead. You were an uncredited zombie in that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a that's a journalist thing. Um, so um, in journalism, um, in film journalism, then um, often what happens is they'll put together uh, a press junket and uh, and the junket is the idea is they get all of the reporters that they want to cover the film together at one time. They put them in one location and they do all the press for the movie in the space of a couple of days. And then they send all the press away and all those people go out and, you know, and then write their coverage of the movie. So the brilliant press junket for day of the dead was to bring all of us to the set and to put us all in the movie as zombies. So all of the journalists were flown in from everywhere um, to Pennsylvania and then to the um, mine uh, where they were shooting South of Pittsburgh. And, you know, we got in on a Friday night and, and then we spent Saturday um, on the set. And of course, you know, because the cool part is then you're on the set. So you're getting to do all of your journalistic observations. And then Saturday night, it was the big get together with um, with all the filmmakers and the interviews, you know, with George and stuff like that. And then Sunday, we all got to go home. So, uh, yeah, that was part of that press junket thing. But I mean, it was and I was like, I think I was 19, 19 or 20, maybe something like that. Um, I was actually at school in uh, in Ithaca, New York, and so I didn't have far to go. Uh, and I was working for uh, a magazine called Preview, which was um, edited by Jim Steranko. And I mean, the press junket was amazing. Uncle Bob was there from Fangoria, um, Don Farmer from the Splatter Times, um, the uh, Tom Allen from the Village Voice. This is the guy who made Halloween. This is the guy who reviewed Halloween positively and and gave it a second life because when it first came out people didn't really pay attention and once tom allen's review hit in village voice totally changed that movie and the perception of that movie so tom allen was there um bunch of other people my editor is so funny stranko is like okay everybody's going to be interested in george and tom you know savini and here's what you do mark what you do is i want you to get all the makeup crew guys to come to your hotel room at night, like after everybody else is doing their thing to tell you the real stories about behind the scenes on production. And so uh, who was that crew? Well, it was Greg Nicotero. And oh. Was, um, um, oh, shoot. I'm going to blank on the other names, but it was that crew. Uh, Howard, 
Oh, shoot. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm remembering your names. But Nicotero, so those guys, and then the funny thing is, is that like Uncle Bob heard that I was asking Nicotero to come to my hotel room. And he's like, I want to come to that. And so Uncle Bob <laughs> came over and uh, and Paul Gonier, who was writing a book on George, he came over. And so everybody, we all hung out in my room and they told us all these great stories. And then, you know, I got to write about Day of the Dead for like, I think it was in three issues of uh, Preview Magazine, spread over three issues. Uh, but yeah, that was a really great experience that was a lot of fun so i wasn't technically i didn't work on it it wasn't one of the movies i worked on i mean like i worked on midnight run and i worked on mannequin and i worked on wisdom i mean as part of the crew um but i covered a lot of movies as a journalist so i covered starman you know john carpenter's starman and i went to england and covered uh bond movie um view to a kill and uh the sting thing the bride of frankenstein that was called the bride and uh Sneaked onto the set of Legend. I upset Ridley Scott. <laughs> oh, man, that's a funny story. Um, Want to hear it? Yeah, <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I really wanted to go to England to interview um, the cinematographer, Alex Thompson, who had shot Michael Mann's The Keep. I was a huge fan of Michael's. And I loved The Keep. And I wanted to talk to Alex Thompson for American Cinematographer. And so, you know, Steranko was like, well, if you're going to England to talk to this guy, um, then we got to line up all this other stuff. And that's why he lined up all this other stuff for me to do. So while I was there for a week. So uh, Alex Thompson, we were at um, Pinewood and I'm pretty sure it was at Pinewood. And this was I'm trying to remember whether the set had burned down already or not. I think it had burned down. And um, and so they were doing all this other shooting, you know, to try to go around that. Anyway, so I was talking to Alex Thompson, interviewing Alex Thompson. He's like, yeah, so I'm going to be shooting this scene late this afternoon, this location, you know, come down there and stuff. And so I go down there and I'm like um, watching Alex and he's like, you know, now you need some stills to go with this. Go to the production office and ask for some stills. So I go up to the production office and I go in. And I start talking to the person like, okay, I'm here. I'm from Preview Magazine. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, so I need some stills because I'm interviewing Alex Thompson. And Ridley Scott walks in and he's listening to me saying all this stuff. And he's like getting progressively more upset. He's like, you're from what? You're from how, where did you, how did you get on set? It turns out Alex had just ignored the publicist completely. He just had set this all up and said it was okay for me to do this when it wasn't really okay for me to do this. And they told me that uh, I needed to leave immediately and that I couldn't do any of that stuff. I couldn't have any stills and couldn't write about the movie or anything because it was a closed set. And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was the case. So, yeah, that was my interaction with Ridley Scott. Which is pretty funny. <laughs> if, you could, if you could go back in time and tell young Mark Steesland to tell Ridley <laughs> Scott to avoid the prequel alien movies and maybe make them better. <laughs> would you do that? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> People like him. <laughs> I like one of them. So I'm just being a jackass. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. Yeah, you're, you're forcing him to take a pretty hard stand there. So. <laughs> Did you see Mark walk that fence so well? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> All so, right, yeah, so that's Day of the Dead. Yeah, Day of the Dead is one of my favorites. I just got to say that uh, the whole 
from the beginning you see this ripped out tongue and it's just it's it's great i love it that's all i gotta say good good brent all right i honestly i'm i'm torn here because you know usually we run about an hour and a half to you know maybe two hours and you know you've got a lot of stuff coming up in the next you know month or two that i want to talk about but i also just want to sit here and listen to you tell you know stories like that for the next hour or so <laughs> well there's there's lots of those i don't know some of them i probably couldn't tell or shouldn't tell but um yeah anyhow so well you you can uh you know jot those down we'll have you back at some point <laughs> so you can uh, you can fill us in another hour with stuff like that sure um so I'm going to flounder a little bit here, so feel free to rescue me. Now, you wrote a play called The Deception of Catherine Vasque, and uh, my understanding right now is that it's currently in a holding pattern just because of everything that's going on. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the conception of that um, from idea to, you know, final written version and what you'd like like to do with it from here on out. Um, well, it started as uh, started originally as a short film idea, and uh, I mean, you know, the the basic plot of the play, which is from the back cover, so it's you know, I mean, that's the setup of the play, is that uh, a woman, uh, her son, a young son, has died in an accident, and she feels responsible for that, and uh, she wants to hold a séance to contact her dead son to get forgiveness, uh, you know, from beyond the grave, obviously to get forgiveness from him for this, to kind of solve her feelings of responsibility. And her husband uh, decides to hire somebody to pretend to be a psychic medium, uh, to have a pretend seance so that, you know, they can say, yes, I'm your dead son. And yes, you're forgiven. And that will kind of put a stop to the whole thing just like that. And, uh, and so that conception, that idea uh, originally was this very, you know, I mean, it was a short film. So I, I think this original script for the short film was like probably 12 or 13 pages. And it was really just kind of focused on uh, the core of that idea. And it, I never got to shoot it. And it kind of, lived i mean i keep everything um so i have files and files and files loaded with stuff uh that i get to go back to sometimes and think about oh now i can solve the problem that i was having with that before and you know and maybe it turns into something that i can actually um finish so i keep everything and um and so that was one that i had kept and then i was working on a play um at the college where I'm teaching, I was doing the sound design for uh, 1984. They were doing a stage production of 1984. And so I was doing all the sound design for that. And I had been very involved with uh, theater in high school. I had done a bunch of behind the scenes, all the behind the scenes stuff. I did makeup uh, work, special effects, makeup work and stuff for some of our high school productions. And because uh, I was very into that, of course, with the whole Savini thing and all of that horror stuff going on, you know, then. And so um, so I was very involved with all that. I really love 
theater and uh, the the whole live environment of it. And I, I mean, I love going to plays. When I cast my first feature, I went to plays all over the place looking for actors. Um, and I just really always have this, you know, this feeling about live theater. So when I was working on 1984 and I just kind of got the bug again and I was like, I should really write a play and I had written a couple of other plays um, before, but I was thinking I need something new. And what would be a good idea for a play? I should write something that is uh, contained and has a limited number of characters and and so forth. And suddenly I just remembered that short film idea. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting. That could really work as a play, you know, single set kind of thing if I figure out how to get into it the right way. So conceiving it then as a play, you know, you start working with the material um, that way and and developing it for that particular kind of execution. And so that's what I did. And obviously you're making it bigger than a 12 or 13 minute short film. And so by necessity, you have to do um, other things with it, expand the story and uh, that's kind of where, you know, all the rest of the play then came from. So uh, I was also thinking that the play would make a really great film as a as the thing that you could do in a very contained environment with limited actors and so forth. Um, and so that was something else that I kind of conceived alongside it. And uh, it was writing the screenplay based on the stage play. And so I really wanted to get the stage play to be the thing first. And I was very fortunate that um, Broadway Play Publishing Company, who I submitted the play to, I mean, really on a long shot, because typically plays are not published, not even considered by publishers if they haven't been actually performed. And uh, the um, Catherine Vasque had been read at a staged reading as part of a new play series here locally by a, a pretty good theater um, here locally. And so they had read that. And so I'd gotten to see it with an audience. And even though it was just a staged reading and um, and so then submitting it to Broadway Play Publishing. I mean, I'll be honest with you. It was one of the most shocking emails that I ever got was uh, we want to publish this play and, um, you know, can we send you our contract? And uh, when I kind of started having conversations with the publisher and I mentioned that, you know, I was a huge fan of Death Trap and Sleuth and that these plays were really kind of the inspiration for me. And he said, you know, yeah, I can totally see that. And I think you've got something at the same sort of level as those two it's why I wanted to publish it. And, um, and so I was, you know, I mean, obviously very pleased, but unfortunately now this whole thing has happened and it's really shut down all the theaters and the possibility. I mean, cause it's a Halloween show, you know I mean? It would be ideal to be opening in theaters, you know, in October, but that is obviously not going to happen. So we just kind of hold our breath and keep our fingers crossed that when things go back to normal, that, um, you know, that the play will uh, get, you know, picked up and performed, put on by 
theaters, uh, hopefully all over the place. I mean, I'd really love to see it all over the place. So, um, yeah. So I, I, does that answer your question? I think so. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, the the comparison you made to kind of a smaller film that really is just isolated to a small cast, one location, mm-hmm. I, I think that's, you know, a perfect way of describing it. And, you know, what kind of stuck with me is you just I, I thought you did a brilliant job of just ratcheting up the intensity right around the time that act two hits. It just crescendos and it builds and builds and builds until you just can't like take anymore. Um I, I I absolutely loved it, and I'm not you know uh, a big reader of plays, but I am a big reader, and you know it caught and held my attention. I think I read it all in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so for anybody who's interested in reading that, will it be traditionally released? I mean, you, uh, I don't know how you mean traditionally released. Like, okay, so um, could you? Could you buy it on Amazon or something oh, yeah. like that? Yeah, it's for sale on Amazon. Yeah. It, oh, I, I looked and I couldn't find it, but maybe yeah. I just didn't look well. Yeah, no, it's it's there. It's um, I mean, it's obviously available through Broadway Play Publishing Company as well. But yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, so, uh, yeah, totally available in that sense. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so when you have an idea, you know, for a story, what um factors do you kind of run through to decide whether it's going to be prose whether it's going to be a screenplay what what kind of influences you there uh it i mean it just really depends um and i know that's a really vague answer and it's it's hard to it's hard to say that there's some sort of um like oh i realize now this is going to be this kind of thing. Um, I think different things lend themselves to different mediums. And so it kind of depends on what you're trying to do there. I mean, in the case of Catherine Basque, as I mentioned, I had intended it to be, and I had written, I developed a feature out of the short film that was a completely different direction. I mean, it was a totally different direction and it was a, and it was a, bigger movie. I mean, it was all over the place in terms of locations and it had a big cast and all that kind of stuff. And so I had totally developed that idea. But when I thought of, I want to do a play, I want to write a play, then again, by necessity, you say, here are the limitations that I'm, that I'm working in and, um, or working with. And so you have to consider those. And then as a play, especially that play, obviously doesn't really work as in a prose execution for all sorts of reasons. And um, and so, you know, again, then you have to make kind of make that decision there as well. So, I mean, honestly, one of the things that is a motivating factor about uh, having the prose stuff that is coming from the screenplay ideas or having those things really go together, like the special, for instance, right? Um, I mean, the special is a, was a screenplay and James and I wrote the book of that. And then the screenplay went and became a movie, you know, so now the movie is going to come out. I mean, you know, it's already been seen by some people, but it's going to be out in October, hopefully. And, um, and so, you know, it just kind of that's the process that you go through. So then the book is this piece of intellectual property 
that the movie is based on. And and the, the good part is that the book is always there, you know, so no matter what they do to the movie, the book is still this vision that I had um, or that I, you know, that I had with my co-author that we executed. That's the vision that we had. And so then they go and they make some changes in the movie. Well, you know, that's not so that's not such a big deal because the book still exists. So that's part of the motivation. Also, books have, uh, I mean, no pun intended, but they really do have a longer shelf life than screenplays. And if you write a screenplay, then if it doesn't get produced, chances are that's the end of that project. You know, I mean, maybe years later, somebody gets interested because of something from your career. But books, I mean, you know, you look at somebody like Jim Thompson, who wrote all these incredible books in the 50s and 60s. And um, and then Hollywood comes calling, you know, in the 90s and they make all these great Jim Thompson movies after Dark My Sweet and The Grifters and, um, you know, uh, and all those other movies that they made. And now we're, we're seeing another wave of interest in that kind of stuff. Um, Yorgos Lathinamos is making uh, the uh, Population 1280, which is one of the best Jim Thompson books. And I mean, he's going to do that movie. That movie's been made three times, I think, you know. So this is something else that books can do. And uh, and so that's another reason that I'm interested in sort of having that stuff and um, and having that be there as the source, so to speak, for the screenplays. So it just I mean, it all kind of comes down to, again, whether the idea is good or not. And uh, and that's really what you're looking for first, you know, or at least that's what I'm really looking for first. Definitely. Uh, and to kind of go off of one of your points, it's interesting how sometimes you see fans say they don't like a film adaptation or a television adaptation. It ruined the book. Well, you just said it. And I've heard other authors say it. it's incorrect. It doesn't ruin the book, but it always comes down to their perception of how it should be. Basically, a clone is how I'm seeing how I'm seeing how fans react. And for me, I don't really want to see that. I want to see a new vision. Like Rob, for, for me, I liked Rob Zombie's first Halloween. He revi- he did a revision on John Carpenter's. I thought it was a good job and still stuck to the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I like to see in adaptations. But other people are different. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. And it didn't erase the 1978 version from existence. No, no. <laughs> you know, contrary to what you might read on the internet. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, you know, so, and that's, again, that's the, that's the thing. You can always have that sort of different experience. And it's, and it's also the idea of that thing being there then, because again, if you, if you've written a movie and then the screenplay gets rewritten by other people and then that rewrite gets rewritten by other people, you know, it goes farther away from uh, maybe what you had written originally and maybe it gets better, uh, you know, if you're lucky and maybe it, uh, it doesn't if you're not lucky, but it's still, that's the only thing that people know is the movie. If the book exists, then it's this other kind of thing that's already there or in the case of Catherine Vasque, if the play exists or, you know, in the case of black jar man, for instance, um, that the short story of the black jar man is this component of the feature version, but there's all this other stuff around that short story 
that is in the feature screenplay. So, um, you know, that's the way it's still based on the short story, so to speak. Right. But there's still all of this other stuff that you didn't read in the short story that's in the movie version, you know. So, I mean, again, it's just it's part of the process. It just really sort of depends on every individual project. Now, uh, the Black Jar Man, the one you said got picked up, is that the story that's going to be in um, Midnight in the Pentagram, yes, the yeah. new Silver Shamrock an- anthology? Yes, it is. So can you give us any kind of uh, brief synopsis of that, what we can expect to read come October? Um, let's see. So, uh, well, let's see. <laughs> what can I say about that? Um, it's a... Uh, it's kind of um, the short story takes place in during the Civil War um, in the South on a plantation and um, involves uh, this jar, the black jar, obviously, that has this capability of taking somebody's life force out of them and putting it into somebody else. And sort of then what happens with that particular thing, you know, as these events unfold um, on a plantation during this, you know, obviously very uh, difficult time. And so that then again is for the feature version, that's sort of the backstory or the origin portion of then what's happening in the feature version, which deals with stuff that's happening in the present day related to what was going on um what was going on back then so i'm being very vague i know uh but um yeah that's that's what i can tell you about it Uh, it's a short story you're allowed to be vague with the synopsis (laughs) (laughs) you give us too much synopsis and we don't have anything to look forward to that anthology is for me uh it's my most anticipated one this year it's just that table of contents man like there's other great anthologies that are out but that look i'm picking favorites that one just whoa yeah boom yeah when, no, he's put together a great list yeah when ken just kept announcing one after the other I'm like <laughs> jesus christ man yeah he was just trying to give the horror community a heart attack right there. And he, I, I think he pulled it off. Um, so before that comes out in October, on I think it's September 1st. I could be wrong there. You have another book coming out through Silver Shamrock. I uh, tell us Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Coffin Shadows is about um, a woman who is pregnant. And uh, she starts seeing the ghost of a 12-year-old boy. And um, she obviously very concerned about the appearance of this uh, boy. And it turns out that she was pregnant 12 years earlier and the child died as an infant. And so there's the speculation that Uh, could this be like the ghost of her first child who died? And um, the, the, the problem is that she doesn't know exactly all the circumstances around what happened 12 years ago. She, um, you know, I mean, she's partly blocked it out because of what happened, but there's also some confusion about exactly how the child died and 
what were the circumstances. It was obviously a very traumatic experience for her. She left her home um, and, you know, ran away. She was convinced she was like never going to go back. And her doctor basically tells her, you have to go back if you're going to resolve this. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts, but, you know, if you're having these kinds of hallucinations, then you obviously have got some trauma that you've got to resolve. So you've got to go back. You've got to find out what happened and uh, and sort of get those answers to see if you can solve this situation. And so that's what she does then is kind of goes back to this place where she hasn't been to see her parents. She hasn't seen in 12 years and, um, you know, try to solve this mystery. Hmm. So, Brennan, you want to go down that rabbit hole, the collaborative writing? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of, um, you know, the the work you put out there in prose form is collaborative. Um, And I'm curious why why you go that method so often. Um, Because I can do five times as much. (laughs) That's a real good answer. I, not what I expected, but a real yeah, good answer. No, all right, that's, that's that's all we want to know, Mark. Yeah, just <laughs> thank you. It's been nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm being honest um, in the sense that uh, by working with other people, then you know you have this opportunity to not only have an artistic collaboration with somebody else who is different from you, your style, um, but also then for them to access the people who know you and for you to access the people who know them. And so there's a benefit there in terms of expanding audience on both sides. And then the other part of it is that, uh, you know, you've got, I've got that, thing going on so that person is working on that thing and now i'm working on this other thing with this other person and i mean if i was doing all of this by myself then yeah it would be taking much longer um and also in terms of release uh you know when you're an author and you put out a book it's your name okay and now you've got to kind of go do the other one. And now that's six months later or a year later, and you're putting out another book and so on. And I mean, you know, you see sort of, I mean, I guess in a certain sense, a little bit of the drawback with the timing on these two. I mean, like obvious because Shadow Vista is coming out from Nightworms and that's also a September release. And, um, and I'd hoped that there would be a little more space between those books, but I mean, it's just the way that uh, schedules go sometimes. And so um, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, it's still to the benefit and uh, and it's fun. I mean, I really view it as kind of like um, from as if you use a musical metaphor, like if I was a jazz musician, you know, you go to a jam night and you get up with another jazz musician and, you know, they're the drummer and I'm the bass player and you play with that musician for that session. And then next weekend, you're at a different jazz session and you're playing with another drummer. I mean, so, you know, we don't think anything of it when we look at it musically. And uh, and so I feel like that is kind of the thing that I'm doing with these other writers. And, um, you know, like James Newman and people love his particular coming of age kind of stuff i knew that he was perfect for in the scrape 
because that's what that's about. And so, you know, I it makes sense to work with a writer like that who can bring those strengths to that particular piece. And uh, in the same way, um, you know, Charlie Colyat, uh and what he was doing with his Randall Lee series, then, um, you know, just kind of made sense for Jimmy the Freak. And then, you know, we liked Shadow Vista together. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really, that's really, I'm trying to obviously do as much as possible. And, uh, and that's one of the ways that it can happen, you know. That's that's a really good point, and I, I've um, collaborated on one novel with another author, and th- you're absolutely right. You can write your part on Monday, send it off, and then work on something different on Tuesday while you wait for it to come back, mm-hmm. and then you're back at it on Wednesday or Thursday. Right. Um, now, working with a bunch of different authors, do you find that the way you kind of trade parts with them differs um, do you have a process for uh, who does what? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's just kind of different, depends on each of the individual things. Um, and, you know, cause in some cases it's screenplays were, you know, they're already there. And, uh, and so that forms kind of a pretty solid outline for the prose version, you know, and, um, it's really, it's a, just a question of taking that as the starting point and then developing the prose version once you have it, uh, you know, then following that to its conclusion. So on In the Scrape, I mean, as a for instance, or on the special, um, you know, the, there was a, a lot of that was there, but then James comes in and brings all of his ideas to that on top of that. And then, you know, that's what gets developed. I mean, that's the point of doing it is because you have access to these other kinds of artistic ideas and other artistic input, you know, and so then it becomes that thing. And again, we're collaborating on both. So stuff happens then in the book that then ends up getting back into the screenplay. And it's kind of interesting because the way James Newman and I met originally was at the time I was um, working as a collaborator with Rick Howdela and pretty much it was only Rick and I were writing. I mean, you know, Rick was obviously writing his own stuff and I was writing some of my own stuff, but when we worked together, it was Rick and I were working together. So uh, Chismar, Richard Chismar from Cemetery Dance, you know, knew we were doing this film stuff because Rich was producing some of the short films that we were making like, um, you know, Rick wrote the adaptation of Peekers from Keelan Patrick Burke's story that then I directed, but Chismar produced that. And uh, and so we were trying to get a feature going and Chismar um, said, hey, there's this great book that I'm hoping to put out called Animosity from this writer, James Newman. You guys should read it. And we read it and we loved it and it hadn't been published yet. And so we made a deal with James that we wanted to get the movie rights before it was published. And so we did that. And so then Rick and I wrote the screenplay while writing the screenplay. We came up with some different things that sort of changed what was happening in the book. But the interesting thing is that when James read the screenplay, he came back to us. He's like, guys, I really like what you did with that. Can I put that in the book? I want to revise the book and like put that in the book. And we said, absolutely, you know, of course. And so he took that stuff 
and changed the book. I mean, ultimately, you know, obviously got published and, you know, the movie still hasn't been made, but it's how we got together and sort of kind of getting that process. Then that's something that James and I carried over into the special. I mean, originally James was like, he was too busy and, um, you know, and so forth. And then he came back to me many months later and said that he couldn't get this, the idea for the special out of his mind. And he really still want, he was like, is it still something that we can do together? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so um, that's how that happened. And then again, kind of go through that development process. So it just kind of depends. I'm doing, I'm about to hopefully um, do some new collaborations that are going to be where it's only the idea at this point. And um, there isn't a full outline or there isn't, you know, more than that. And uh, and so that's going to be a little different experience for me. But it's something that I want to head towards for sure. So we'll see what happens, um, you know, with with those as I go into those, hopefully. Oh, good luck, man. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great explanation. So for your co- collaborations, you've worked in a few different indie presses. Uh, do you I'm not sure. I, I know you haven't worked with anyone for one of the big five or one of their imprints, but any you know, idea behind the bookcase is a random house title. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that was a collaboration. It's not, oh, it's not a collaboration. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about anything. Yeah, no, no. The collaborations. No, have not. That's all been the indie stuff. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it was a uh, random house penguin or was it? Did I mix that up? Penguin Random House? No, I mean, yeah, that's the that's another story. Um, so behind the bookcase was actually uh, Delacorte, um, which is the you know because it's a middle grade book. It's for mm. uh, it's for middle grade readers, and um, so uh, it came out from them, and then uh, I sold a follow up title to my editor at Random House not a sequel to behind the bookcase, but a different book that was a middle grade book. And uh, she bought that and they paid part of the advance and I wrote it and I delivered it and Penguin and Random House merged. And in the merger, my editor got squeezed out and the project got taken over by another editor who didn't like it and she dropped it. And so now it's Random House technically owns it, but I can't do anything with it unless I pay back part of the advance uh, to get the title from them. So oh, wow, I, wow. I would love to do that at some point, but I don't have the money to uh, to do that right now. And so that's what I'm, you know, I'm kind of hoping that I can uh, that I can still do that. It's that book that they have, it's one of my favorites of mine. Um, but yeah, unfortunately it's kind of locked away in this limbo, but anyhow, that's what happens sometimes. So that stinks. I was going to ask, uh, I don't really see many collaborations for the big five or, you know, their imprints. Uh, I was just wondering if it's uncommon or if I just don't see it. Um, no, I mean, there have been some uh, fairly big writing teams. I mean, if you want to just go to the James Patterson thing, I mean, you know, that guy <laughs> has how many collaborations, right? I think he's working with a new yeah. collaborator every week. Um, <laughs> but that certainly is a case. Uh, there were uh, there were those other writers 
I forget their names now and shame on me for forgetting their names because uh, they wrote like um, Relic and, um, you know, the old Relic about the museum where the creature comes back to life. Um, rats. Uh, I'd have to look them up. But anyway, I mean, they had quite a successful career. I mean, Skip Inspector back in the early days of Splatterpunk, you know, those mm. guys wrote a whole bunch of stuff together. So, I mean, it's not it's not unheard of, uh, but, you know, yeah, I mean, it's got its own set of challenges for sure. Do you have advice for anyone that wants to think about dabbling in that? You mean collaboration? Yep. Um, no, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is that, um, I mean, I've done a lot of different collaboration. Film is a very collaborative medium. And, uh, and there have been lots of instances where, you're working with somebody and then you realize that you really don't want to be working with that person, but you're working with them already. So you finish the job and then what you do is you don't work with them again. So, um, I mean, that's really, I, that's the best advice because I mean, you don't know, I mean, somebody else may not have a problem working with that person and, you know, you could find a style that doesn't match the style of one writer, but it does match the style of some other writer and they could find somebody else who it does work for. So, um, I mean, I don't know. Brendan says he's collaborated with somebody, had that experience. I mean, maybe that was a great experience for him. Maybe if I collaborated with that writer, you know, we wouldn't have uh, a good working method. I don't know. It's, I, so I think it really just kind of comes down to the individual situation. And that's got to be what each person decides. Yeah, that's, that's pretty fair. That's a good way to look at it. Uh Real, real and, quick. and you have, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's right. But anyway, um, <laughs> but but you you've you know now written two with uh, James Newman, and granted the the special was a little bit different, but uh, and then two with Charles. Is it is it Colyot? Colyot. Okay. Um, two with him as well. So obviously, you know, that's a good working relationship. Um, for you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and and again. You know, it just kind of depends. Uh, there's so many factors involved in terms of schedule. And, and I mean, I've talked to there's been a lot, a lot of other people that I've talked to about collaborations that just haven't worked out. I mean, they've said no for one reason or another because of schedule or because they've already got something else going on and, you know, whatever it happens to be. So that's the case also. So, um, you know, it's just again, it's part of the process. You just kind of got to keep going. <laughs> now throw it to you pat <laughs> before we started recording you you and i were gonna talk a little bit about host i just watched that uh tonight i, I take it you watched it as well the movie that just came out this year yeah yeah so it's interesting because uh i mean that was on zoom we're on skype so i think we're safe and we're not having a seance <laughs> yeah right <laughs> what, what, what were your thoughts on that that film. Uh, I mean, man, it's it's so great that they're having such incredible success uh, with that. Everybody loves it. It's 100% on the tomato meter. And uh, that's pretty tough to pull off, uh, especially yes. the Shutter crowd. You know, you go to the, the comments section on Shutter and you look at some of these titles and you see <laughs> the stuff that people say. I mean, doing this is not easy. Uh, it's a lot of effort. And if it's something that you don't like, it was still the same amount of effort, you know, that people put into it um, to do it. So it's pretty remarkable when something gets finished in the first place and then actually, uh, you know, 
sort of hits people in the right spot on top of it. And so it's it's really cool that they're having this um, great success and uh, that people are liking. I mean, I think it's really interesting also that it's short, like, you know, it's less than an hour. And uh, and so that's a really interesting thing. Also, I really like sort of the, the fluid stuff that's going on with running times, because like when I made the last way out, you had to have 88 minutes. Otherwise, you like you couldn't be on television. Uh, you know, you couldn't people didn't take you seriously. And there was all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, that movie would have been more successful with probably 10 minutes out of it. But I had to have 88 minutes. So there was a lot of stuff that I kind of had to force and didn't really want to. And, you know, now with the way things are, you can be a lot more flexible and a lot more fluid. So, I mean, it's really cool to see that also, because, I mean, another half hour of hosts, it wouldn't have worked. Right. Mm. I mean, it just would have gone on too long. But as a 56 minute movie, then, yeah, then it really it works in that sense. So, you know, it's cool. It brought me back to when I watched Paranormal Activity, the first one for the first when it came out. Right. Uh, I creeped out. The effects probably didn't cost too much. Yeah. It did the job. There were jump scares. I, I'm not hating on jump scares. I see people bringing that up, but that's a horror movie. You yeah. Know, shit's shit's going to jump out. So, yeah, it's good. hats off to them, man. They, yeah. they did a good job. Yeah. And 100% on uh, Ron Tomato. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how the hell do you do that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brennan, do you do you want to take over for a little bit, sir? I don't have anything to add to that. I'm hoping to uh, make some time for that movie this weekend, but uh, I have not gotten to it yet. So thank you guys for uh, not spoiling it, at least, you know, too blatantly. No. Um, so, you know, Mark, before we uh, hit the finish line, you did mention that you have uh, Shadow Vista coming out uh, also in September. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that as well? <laughs> yes, um, that is uh, that's about a guy who works as a security guard at uh, a subdivision that's under construction, and it's been shut down because the construction company ran out of money, and so they've had to put a fence around the whole thing, and now they have the security guards there, sort of you know trying to watch the property. And I mean, it's a big subdivision, so there's houses that are partly finished and then there's places where you know it's only concrete foundations and this kind of stuff and uh what they don't know is that a serial killer is using the subdivision grounds as the place to dispose of their bodies and they're putting it into the construction so like under a piece of extended patio so that it just looks like the patio you know but there's this body underneath there and the security guards uh, one in particular, they start to find out that this is what's happening. And then, um, you know, they get caught up in sort of uh, the battle with the serial killer, who, of course, is trying to stop them from exposing what they are uh, doing also. So, I mean, you know, it's it's where I live right now. There's this massive these massive subdivisions going up all around me. And so it was really easy to sort of look at that environment and um and think what could i do in in this kind of an environment and so uh that's kind of where that came from so um yeah so that's coming out from from nightworms it's going to be the first worms has published and uh so we're really excited about uh about having that honor 
Oh, congrats, man. Yeah. That was really cool. How did, um, how did that come about? I mean, cause that's not something, you know, obviously you worked with them. Uh, I think it was December of yes. last year yeah. to put out, um, they, they put Jimmy the freak in their, uh, package, Correct. but, uh, to to be the first book that they actually you know produce that they publish yeah um so sadie had read uh in the scrape and had just you know she really loved it and uh and i was really happy i mean obviously uh in the scrape was the first silver shamrock title and uh and so ken had really put a lot of effort into promoting the book and getting it everywhere and it obviously paid off uh because a lot of people read it and and you know the, and the satisfying thing is that a lot of people really liked it and uh, and continue to like it and uh and Sadie really loved it and so I was very appreciative of her uh review and contacted her and kind of talked to her and we so we sort of struck up a conversation that way and uh, and then when I heard about what she was doing with the December box, I said, well, I've got this other book, you know, that's uh, coming out and uh, I think it would be a good fit. And so she decided that, yes, it was a good fit and uh, and put it in. And again, the readers really responded to it and, and really liked like Jimmy the Freak a lot. And so by this point, then Sadie and I were having some fairly regular conversations. And so. When uh, Shadow Vista was finished, when Charlie and I finished it, then uh, I asked Sadie if she uh, could beta read for us. And um, she did. And she really liked it. And she said, uh, do you have a publisher yet? And I said, no. Um, but, uh, you know, wh when are you guys going to start getting into that? <laughs> and she said, that's just what I was thinking. And uh, and so it was really just kind of serendipitous that, um, you know, that happened uh, at that point. And so that's the way that that came together. And again, then she had to look at what the schedule was. And she said that she felt like it would really fit with this September idea that they had. And uh, and so that's that's why it uh, it's coming out in September because, you know, she does the themes in the boxes, obviously. So, um, you know, that's an important part of what they do. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, it sounds really, really cool to the, the uh, synopsis on that. I'm very much looking forward to getting my hands on that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's, before we jump to the next question, um, I wonder if Mark or Charlie came up with that by experience or like where did that idea come from on the plot about the foundation and the body? <laughs> well, the, the original idea that I had, the really, really original idea that I had was that um, it was at a cemetery and that the serial killer was, um, was a person who was paying attention to when graves were being dug for, you know, burials and was going in and putting the bodies of their victims in the open graves the night before the funerals were happening. So that then the next day the funeral happens, the coffin is lowered on top of the body. Presto, you know, I mean, it's, it's taken care of and uh, it'll never be found. And, and so I was kind of developing that original concept. And as I was developing it, one of the things that I, 
have thought of was, but the location is so small. I mean, even if you have some kind of big cemetery, it's still a cemetery and there's, you know, it would kind of have to expand beyond that maybe. And I started thinking about how, how to expand beyond that and so on. And um, so then I was thinking about that. And then near to where I live, uh, there was this mall that was being constructed um, and quite a good sized mall, but they ran out of money and uh, and the mall wasn't finished. And so they literally put a chain link fence around it. They literally had security guards patrolling the grounds. And um, and so I started thinking, well, maybe there's a chance that I could actually make this movie. I probably would have a hard time getting to cemetery, but I could probably get permission at the mall before they, you know, do something with it. And they kept saying, oh, we're going to finish it. We're going to finish it. And, uh, and so then all of a sudden they said, no, we're not going to finish it. And they tore the whole thing down. And uh, so then I was like, well, a subdivision would have more opportunities in terms of locations because it's like an entire neighborhood. And yet it's like a ghost neighborhood because there's nobody there. And it just really ended up feeling like the the better choice of all three of those things. So to kind of go back to talking about how does something develop, you, you know, you come up with an idea. So the core idea never changed, but all of these other things around that changed. And ultimately I think, you know, came to really the best possible version. It's a, it's sometimes it's just a matter of hanging on long enough to something for it to get to the best possible version, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and just uh, kind of makes me reflect because like I got those thoughts for how to fill out plots. And uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by mobsters and serial killers. So my wife uh, was the one that got me back into writing. So she's well aware. I tell her my ideas. And I mean, she's she's great. But I'm always wondering, hmm, if like. At my work, if my boss happens to see my Google or IT does, or <laughs> I write at work sometimes, and I'll make this short. I tell Brennan, I text him, I'm like, dude, I just wrote this one scene. Like, I won't get into details, and I don't. It's not a graphic one, but I go, I just wrote this one sex scene because the story called for it. And I'm like, if anyone at work sees this, I, and I'm called an HR, <laughs> I got no way to talk myself out of this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta be careful these days. <laughs> you might actually be better off with that than if you wrote like uh, some sort of like horrific decapitation scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So let's move on to what are you reading, sir? <laughs> what am I reading? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I tend to read according to whatever I'm working on. So um, and that's same thing with like film viewing. So if I'm working on something, I, I'm really interested in what else has been done so that I don't do that. And uh, so I do a lot of research into what else has a similar idea. You know, what have other people done with this kind of idea and uh, and so forth. And. And sometimes you you think of something and you go to look up the plot and you're like, oh, yeah, somebody else has really already done that. And, um, you know, you, you won't be able to escape the comparison um, to that thing 
with your idea because it's just too similar from the start. And so, uh, you know, and that can kill the idea. Anyway, sometimes you sort of save that and you come back to it uh, later and figure out how to do it differently. But in terms of sort of my reading list or my watching list, that's always really tied into, for the most part, tied into my work in progress, whatever it is that I'm doing. Sometimes I read a little bit uh, out of that. And I'm trying to think of uh, like, as a, for instance, I read You Should Have Left, um, which was just made into a movie with Kevin Bacon um, that just, uh, I think, just hit the VOD, hit the red box and stuff like that. Uh, But based on this book that's uh, by a German author. um, And so I was very interested to see that book and then watch the movie to see what did they do differently from the book how did they adapt the book you know and so forth so it's a very i mean it's a very focused kind of process that i'm doing so you know just to say hey what are you reading <laughs> that's kind of my approach is a little more technical in that sense um so can't say too much about what i'm reading because some of those things might su- make some suggestions about works in progress <laughs> that i don't want to talk about Um, so I'm trying to think of what else I just read. I just finished the, um, the Dean Koontz, uh, the series that he wrote for Amazon, the nameless series, um, which is like six short novellas with the same character, but in six kind of different scenarios. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm a huge Koontz fan. I know that Koontz doesn't do it for a lot of people, but uh, he is a big influence on me. And there's a lot of stuff that I really like uh, about what he does. So um, I just finished reading that series. And um, what else? I should look at my Kindle, right? I look at my Goodreads. <laughs> uh, I don't. I tend not to not to do that. Um, you know, I mean, if I like it, I mean, that's that's okay. Uh, but again, a lot of it is tied to works in progress, and so. Um, and I've seen people say stuff on Twitter, like I say, I'm reading this for research. And the next thing I know, um, you know, people are, uh, suddenly somebody has an idea that's similar to this idea that I've got. And I mean, not to say that that happens, but I guess it happens. Um, yeah, I'm looking at stuff here and I'm saying, yeah, I can't talk about that. And I can't (laughs) talk about that. So, so, so I guess the, the the question is, what were you reading six months ago? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, um, I'd have to go. I'd have to go dig. Um, I, I'm curious though. For um, you know, give a give us a title of yours that's out. Um, and can you share us maybe one thing that you were reading um when you were working on that? Well, I mean, Deception of Catherine Vasque. Um, as a for instance, I I mean I I read lots of plays i mean i a ton of plays let me go let me go grab something here um let's, let's talk about mark while he's gone <laughs> oh shit he hears us <laughs> brandon what you drinking sam 76 so oh, i like that one i don't yeah. know if you can see that stack no it's on you, you can see there is a stack there is a stack. <laughs> um i know i have my background set to blur um but uh yeah so i mean i read uh let's see amadeus the woman in black night watch shadow box um glengarry glenn ross wait until dark 
Shining City, Dial M for Murder, The Pillow Man, Dangerous Liaisons, Ghost Stories, Darker Shores, The Ghost Train. Um, and I think there's some things that are probably missing because I got them electronically from the library or whatever. So, um, and of course, Sleuth and of course, Death Trap. Um, and uh, so all of those really went into the process then of writing Catherine Basque. Hmm. And uh, there's a lot of stuff there that is for, you know, sort of different purposes and different ideas. As, as you heard, there's some of it that's not even horror oriented stuff, but is an incredibly successful play. So you're wondering, OK, so what did they do and why is that successful? How, what works here and what can I learn from what works there, you know, to sort of get into my thing? That's uh, that's really cool. And I have to I have to tell you, we usually throw in, you know, what are you reading as a fun little throwaway at the end. But you, you well, you managed to turn it into an insightful answer. You, you managed to take, you know, what are you reading and basically make it about process. I, I, I I'm I'm really uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was the best uh, reply we've gotten so far. This is uh, this is the 30th episode wow. uh, we're recording. It'll be the 26th or 7th that is posted though something like that i don't know cool so congrats <laughs> brennan what's your pro what are you reading right now i am reading i'm gonna go current because my answer just does not go as deep as mark's i'm afraid um i'm reading the milan witch by Catherine cavendish which is an upcoming uh silver shamrock title uh really really cool it's like a 110 page novella uh Catherine Cavendish does atmosphere super duper well. She does like, you know, British coast very, very well. Um, and it's there's definitely some scenes in there that are creepy as hell. Cool. Um, Patrick, what about you? S.H. Cooper. She's got a collection coming out called All That's Fair. And uh, I am finishing up. Uh, it's it's a collection that's got a bunch of different stuff in it. It's not just all creepy. It's not all wholesome. And she does creepy really well. Uh, she does ghost stories really well. And the other one is at, right after that, because I'm almost done with that, is John F.D. Taff is coming out with a novella, The Farron, Blood and Brimstone. And I don't know what it's about yet besides it's part of the, the uh, Farron series. <laughs> so I'm really looking towards that. Um, Mark, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we go into where can people follow you? Um. No, I mean, this has been a blast. You know, you guys have uh, sort of covered uh, all different kinds of unexpected avenues. So uh, we even talked about roof rakes, which I did not. For it, so, uh, I didn't prep for that either. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, we've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, where, where can people follow you? Uh, well, MarkSteensland.com is the good central place to start just because it's got all the links. There's all the links to uh, the different works uh, to, to purchase or to, you know, access. Um, and then all of the links to social media as well. I'm on Instagram and uh, Twitter. I do have a public Facebook, but I, I tend not to do too much over there. Uh, Facebook tends to be a little more um, like my personal Facebook profile is um, is not a public profile. So that tends to be more where um, there is some overlap, uh, but my family stuff is and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, mostly 
Twitter, probably number one, Instagram, probably uh, number two, as far as that stuff goes. But the website certainly is going to, you know, always have the latest info. So great. And uh, Mark, have you heard of Buzz Book Expo 2020? I think I have, uh, but I can't remember much about it. Could you tell me some more? Brennan, that's a that's a really good solid answer because I half expected you to say no, which would have been really disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> so before we uh you know kick in the outro music and you guys get to hear Laurel Hightower say weird things in a creepy voice, uh, I want to remind readers and book reviewers, podcasters, librarians, booksellers, and all lovers of great scary books that Buzz Book Expo 2020 is just around the corner. Buzz Book Expo is a live streaming event in which publishers will be announcing all the great new horror fiction releases they have to offer through the coming year. There will be interviews, Q&As, presentations, book cover reveals, and more from all of your favorite horror publishers, and it's all for free. Spend two days immersed in exciting book talk from publishers and authors alike. Patrick, do you remember how much it costs? I think it's free. F-R-E-E. It was free. Good job. The event will take place on August 22nd and 23rd. All information, including links to the expo, can be found at marysangi.wordpress.com slash buzz-book-expo-2020. We hope to see you there. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Steenslin. Everybody, check out all 50,000 of his books coming out that he co-writes with many people. But in all seriousness, me and Brennan talk about it sometimes, you know, what books we are, well, all the time, what books we're looking towards. Uh, the one with you and Glenn we're excited for. We're happy for you with uh, being published, being the first book with uh, Nightworms. That's exciting. And we're I'm personally really looking towards your short story in the upcoming uh, Silver Shamrock uh, anthology. Uh, Brennan, thank you, as always, for being my partner. He's stepping his hat for all audio listeners. And guys, have, have a great night. Thanks a lot. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead.